Hi, thanks for joining us online. We're glad that you've chosen to access this message. It's so encouraging to know that God is using the ministry of Portico Community Church to touch the hearts and lives of people all across the world. If you have a story to share or a prayer request, we would love to hear from you at info at porticocanada.ca. To support our ministry, you can donate online by clicking on the Donate button at the top right of your screen. Once again, we're so glad that you've joined us. It's our prayer that this message from God's Word will deeply impact your life. Hey, good morning, everyone. Oh, come on, you haven't learned yet. Good morning, everyone. Okay, relax. (laughs) It's so nice to be back. I was away last weekend. I was down in Cleveland. Uh, Because I'm not busy enough hosting Huntley Street and pastoring here, I'm also a touring pastor for a a Christian rock band in the U.S. So, yeah, you know, wasn't busy enough. So thank you for that. Wow, appreciate it. Um... And the week before, I just kind of sat here, and it's, it's hard for me just to sit and not teach because it's kind of what, a, what I was born to do and what I love to do, and so I'm excited to be back here uh, teaching today. And I know that we've been enjoying this series, uh, Breathe. We've been enjoying uh, Pastor Doug sharing uh, the first week we were talking about um, awakening, coming alive in our faith again just like the Israelites when they were slaves in Egypt and God called them out and he said, before you go and and start being a nation, I just want you to come and spend time with me. Come and get refocused. And so that was a beautiful reminder. And uh, last week, talking about the power of a transformed life and how God wants us all to be transformed. And today, uh, the message is called Alive. What does it mean to be fully alive in Christ through worship? How do we live that out? What does that mean? What does God expect of us? And then next Sunday, I'm under strict order. I can't tell you what we're going to do, but it's going to be awesome. Now, okay, I was raised, well, I came to faith when I was 17, raised in a Portuguese home, and about nine years later, my dad became a believer, and we started attending a Portuguese church, and I noticed that some of us Portuguese tend to be a few minutes late for the service. And they said, oh, that's just a Portuguese thing. Uh, That's not true. (laughs) I've noticed a couple of scragglers here and there. But for next week, uh, honestly, you don't want to be late. Because right off of the top, we're going to be setting the tone for the entire service. And I fear that if you miss the first uh, even three minutes, you're going to kind of lose out on the power of what we're trying to accomplish and do in this service. So please, make sure you're here on time, come a few minutes early, you know, there's coffee provided for in the foyer, say hi to somebody, and then we'll get into the service. So make sure you're here for, for next week. Now, uh, today, I get the privilege of talking about a topic called Alive, and um, I've been spending a lot of time in prayer and saying, Lord, you know, we have an outline, and, you know, we have a directive, and we want to go in a certain, a certain direction, but I'm very aware that, you know, we have three services here on a Sunday morning, and that each service kind of has its own unique, you know, feeling and personality. And somebody in the first service may not be going through the same thing that somebody is going through in this service, and the same can be said for the third service. So even though we have a structure in place, I always say, Lord, what do you have for that particular service? Is there something that you really want me to, to focus on? And I just want you to know that although we have this structure in place, I think it's very important to be open Uh, to the Spirit of God, to make sure we speak a word of life into somebody's life. Amen? Amen. All right. 
Well, I'm going to teach from one of my favorite books of the Bible, and um, it's the book of James. And we're going to start off in James chapter 2. And if you don't have a Bible, you can either grab one in the foyer, or you can follow along on our Portico app, okay? Uh, The whole outline is there, and all the key verses are included there as well. Now, James is a very interesting book of the Bible. James is a very interesting guy. Um, Remember this. James was the younger brother of Jesus, okay? Any sibling rivalry here? Imagine growing up with Jesus as your older brother. (laughs) Those are big shoes to fill, man. I don't care what you do. And so James lives in this wonderful shadow of Jesus, and he, he gets insights into his life that nobody gets. He's family. He's having dinner with them every day. They're going to school together. They're walking to synagogue together. They're having Bible study together. Could you imagine having Bible study with Jesus? That guy's going to know a lot. <laughs> and so James, as the younger brother, gets this opportunity to be discipled by Jesus before he even calls any of the disciples. And in fact, um, we know that James wasn't his actual birth name. That, that was changed in 1611. I don't know if you know this. James was the last book of the Bible to be voted into the Bible to become what's called the canon, which are the 66 books that we call the Holy Bible today. Because it was so strong, it had such sharp words for leadership and people in authority, there was a real struggle whether or not that was something that God wanted in the Word. And of course, it was, and so it came to be. Uh, But James, his birth name was Jacob, which is a very Hebrew Jewish name. So we had Jesus, or um, Yeshua was his Hebrew name. And Jacob's birth name was Yaakov, Jacob. And in 1611, when King James commissioned the first English translation of the Bible, he strongly suggested to the scribe that Jacob be changed to James. So so that kind of lives on. That's a little side note. But James has these wonderful insights Um, that help us as believers. And we're talking about how to live a life that's alive in God. How do we express that on a daily basis? And as the team was gathering in our our sermon prep meetings, this is the verse that unanimously kind of floated to the top and we said this is the key for for the message. And it's found in James chapter 2, verses 20 uh, through 26. And James says, You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see, that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Okay? In the same way, okay, let's go down to verse 26. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. Everybody say, faith without works is dead. Now, guess what dead means in the original Greek? Dead. Wow. That's why I'm the teaching pastor. (laughs) I look up the original Greek word, and the word is nekros, and nekros literally means dead. So he's saying that if you just have faith, but you don't have works that accompany that faith, well, then 
it, it's dead. And here's a picture to remind you of what dead looks like, okay? <laughs> it's not a place you want to be. But this is how strong the language is in James. He says it can't just be one. It can't just be the other. It's got to be working together. If you think of chemistry, maybe one chemical on its own, it's okay. But when you put it together, there's an explosion. Well, James says when you have faith and you have works together, there's this explosive nature about it. So let's start with our first point and ask ourselves, what does it mean to be fully alive? Well, to be fully alive means to be relationally engaged. Okay, so to be fully alive means to be relationally engaged. God wants us to be in relationship with one another, with people in our church, in our family, in our communities, in our schools, in our places of work. James chapter 2, again, James, verse 8, he says, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, then you're doing right. And the implication is if you're not loving your neighbor, if you don't love your neighbor as you love yourself, then you're doing wrong. So he says that when we love our neighbor, we're doing it right. Now, let me, I want to ask all the men in the room a question. I don't know if it's just me, but does anybody here, any man, do you enjoy cutting the grass at all? Let me see if you enjoy cutting the grass. Three guys, that's it? Come on. Okay, over here, yeah. Does anybody enjoy using a snowblower to remove, like, lots of snow from your driveway? Let me see. See, guys? I don't know what it is about, about men with that. It's like it was tall and now it's short. It was tall and now it's short. Now, I am so unorganized in most of my life. You can ask my dear wife. I call it controlled chaos. My desk looks like somebody broke into the house at all times. But when it comes to cutting the grass, I love cutting the grass in a straight line. It's tall and now it's short. It's wonderful. There was a lot of snow, now there's not. There's something so gratifying about that as a man. In fact, I love um, doing the lawn and, and removing snow so much that when we first moved into our, our new home in Milton in 2003, on what they called Black Friday, I don't know if you remember that, all the, trans- uh, the um, transformers went down on the eastern seaboard and there was no, there was no power. And we we're, were living in Milton at that time, And uh, whenever it snowed, I looked for any excuse to get out my snowblower. Because we had this little pathetic driveway, and the snowblower was almost the same size as the driveway. You know what I mean? (laughs) One pull, two, and you're done. But just something manly about it, and I loved it. And I would walk around, ask Karen, I would walk around the block and do everybody's, you know, sidewalks. I would do as many driveways as I could because it was tall, and then it was short. It was just amazing. And I remember one time I was uh, doing my neighbor's driveway, and we're all original owners because the homes were, were new, and everybody was getting to you know, to know each other. And there was this wonderful like Muslim couple at the end of our, of our community, really, really sweet couple. And he came home one day, and there I was with the snowblower. He caught me in the act of cleaning his driveway. And he said, he goes, what are you doing? He wasn't angry. But he says, why are you clearing my driveway? Like, why, why would you do that? I said, well, you know, it's kind of, it's part of my philosophy, part of my the theology of my life. And he said, removing snow? I said, no. <laughs> well, it applies to that. I said, but I follow uh, a religious person, a man, 
um, who told me that I should do to other people what I would like for them to do to me. And so by implication, I was saying, I would like for you to do my driveway too. <laughs> if I'm away and my wife is out there schlepping with a shovel, it would be nice if you came out and helped her like I'm helping your wife. And he says, oh, that's kind of a cool way of living. Who said that? I said, Jesus did. He goes, oh, that's interesting. I said, he said a lot of other cool stuff if you ever like to hear. Well, next thing you know, my wife and I are having dinner with him and his wife. And uh, her brother was in Saudi Arabia training to be an imam and had told her some things about Christianity that weren't necessarily, you know, biblically accurate. And before you know it, we're having this amazing conversation about God. Now, why do I say that? Because if I'm alive in my faith and God is calling me to be engaged in relationships, that I have to put actions to my words. I can preach all day long, but they want to see if I actually live what I believe. You know, it's so easy to do this. It is so easy to do that, but it's so much harder to do this sometimes. But God is calling us to be racial, uh, racial, sorry, <laughs> relationally engaged. In 1 John chapter 4, verses 19 through 20, <clears throat> we're encouraged here. And the Bible says, we love because he first loved us. You know, the Bible says that God is love. It doesn't say that God just loves, but he actually is love. That's all he can be. God is actual love. If you want to see and know the definition of what love is, just look to God. Because he doesn't just love, he actually is love. And so we love because he first loved us. And whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or a sister, he's a liar. That's pretty strong language. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen, well, they, they can't love God whom they haven't seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. And so we go back to that great command, love your neighbor as yourself. You know that Jesus loved people that were kind of unlovable? He loved saints, and guess what? He loved sinners too. He hung out with Pharisees. He hung out with drunkards and gluttons. He hung out with prostitutes. He hung out with the socially elite and the socially unelite, if that's a word. But Jesus was engaged socially with everybody and anybody who was around him. And relationship to God is so important that he gets very strong. This is Jesus speaking in Matthew 5. Verse 23, he says, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember your brother or your sister has something against you, he says, leave your gift in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and make your gift. Do you see how important the relationship is? God says, before you even come give to me, I want you to go and make things right with your brother or your sister. Not just your physical brother or your sister, but anybody who's in your community. And then he gets even stronger in Mark 11. And don't get upset with me because this is what it says in the Bible, Mark 11, verses 25 and 26. He says, and when you stand praying, if you hold anything, anything, against anyone. 
forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. But, ouch. Whenever you see the word but in the Bible, you could say ouch. There's an ouch coming. If you do not forgive, neither will your Father who was in heaven forgive you of your transgressions, of your sins. That's how important relationship is to God. He says, before you come to the table, before you come into the sanctuary, before you come and worship, if you have hate in your heart, if you have unforgiveness in your heart for somebody who you can't see, there's no way you can love me who you can't see. That's how important relationship was. And to that end, there's a story that I want to share with you in, in Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7 tells the story of a woman who had a, a reputation in her community. Most theologians and scholars will say that she was likely either a prostitute or somebody who was uh, morally loose and was disrespected by the religious community. And if you remember the story, Jesus is at the house of a Pharisee, a high-ranking Pharisee, and right in the middle of this incredible opportunity to minister to the religious, this woman walks in with this terrible reputation And Luke picks up the story in verse 38 of chapter 7. And he says, As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. It's a beautiful picture of repentance, how she just, she weeps at his feet, the dirtiest part of the, of the, the male body in those times, And she uses her hair, which was the identity of a woman in those times. And she takes her identity. She takes her hair that she would have taken so much care of. And she washes the dirty, stinky, unclean feet of this this rabbi. Well, I was in Israel several years ago. And and if you know me, you know that I love love Israel. Uh, I've been there 39 times. I'm going to go back in May for my 40th trip. And every time I go, I learn something new about the culture. And my tour guide says to me, he says, Joe, do you believe everything in the Bible? I said, yes, I do. So do you believe the Bible can be actually taken literally? I said, yes, I do. And I knew that he was setting me up for something. Right? He's kind of walking me down the garden path. And he said, do you believe the story took place? I said, yeah, of course. Why is it hard to believe? He said, seriously, do you believe it happened the way it's written? Does it sound like an improbable story? Does it sound too hard to believe that a woman would come and repent and cry at Jesus' feet? doesn't sound like that far-fetched, but he said, do you, do you understand the foot-washing ceremony in Judaism? I said, no, I'm a Portuguese-Canadian from Milton. <laughs> I don't know a lot about Jewish ceremonies and how to wash feet properly. I just pop in the shower personally. And he said, according to custom, there needs to be enough water in a basin to cover the ankle so that when you put your foot in it, the water goes up above the ankle and then it's kosher according to Judaic law and then the foot can be washed. I went, okay, that's interesting, but why are you telling me that? He said, well, if this woman was in the house of a Pharisee, Everything would have had to been done by the book. I said, okay. Well, if she was going to wash his feet in the Pharisee's house, then she would have had to done it according to ritual and custom. 
I said, okay, I'm still not following. He said, do you think it's possible for one woman to cry enough tears at one sitting to fill an entire jar? Now, I know women can cry. I know we can cry. But do you think it's possible at one sitting to cry enough tears to fill up an entire basin? He said, no, of course not. I said, well, what are you saying? Are you saying the story didn't take place? He said, no, that's not what I'm saying. You just don't understand the whole story. Let me show you a picture of this thing called a lacrima. A lacrima was um, a household item. It was very common to have in those days. And for anybody who has a Portuguese, Italian, Spanish background, if the word for tear is lagrima. It comes from the Latin, lacrima. It means tears. So this is called a tear jar. And what they would do in the first century and before is each family would have one of these. And believe this or not, at funerals, somebody would walk around with this jar and collect people's tears. How would you like that job? I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an insurance broker. What are you? I'm a tear collector. What? Because of the way the jar was made, it had a tall neck and it had a, it had a round, flat opening. And when people would cry, they would take the jar and put it to their cheek, and the, cheek, the tears would roll down the, that opening and then down into the jar. And they would collect these over time. And they would display them in a prominent place in the home because it reminded you of the pain and the suffering and the hurt and the anguish that your family had gone through. He said, so when the Bible says that she poured out her tears on his feet, what she most likely did in order to follow the kosher laws is she took her lacrima jar that had been in her family for generations, filled, and it was corked. That's why it wouldn't evaporate. She took the lacrima jar that was filled with the tears of generations of pain and suffering in her family, and she poured out all those tears at his feet. Come on, is there a wow? We go to Psalm 56, 8. We see even the king, King David, hundreds of years before the story was already doing it. He said, Lord, put my tears in your bottle. And we see Jesus understanding the importance of when you're living a life that's fully alive, being in relationship with saints and sinners alike. The second point in living a life that is expressed and being fully alive is to be fully alive means to be socially responsible. Now, how do, what, is, what does this mean? Well, spiritual activity is not devoid of social responsibility. What the Bible is saying is that you can't just tell somebody or hear from somebody that they're in a really hard place and say, oh, sorry to hear that, let me pray for you. And then you send them on their way and you do absolutely nothing about it. I'm going to show you a verse later in James that talks about why that's inappropriate and why that's not biblical and why that's not Christ-like. And so it's not about just having faith it's about having works to back up that faith. So we're called to be responsible in how we deal with our society. But we have to be careful that we don't allow our works to outdo our faith. You ever shared with somebody or asked them, hey, do you think you're going to go to heaven when you die? And they say yes. And what do they say? 
I'm a good person, right? I do good things. At Christmas time, I give to food banks, right? I go to the One Hope table and I sign up. I give money. I volunteer. I am a good person. I do good things. And that's, that's unequal. It can't be just works, but it can't be just faith either. You have to be able to find that balance. And so where we get this idea of being a works-based movement actually stems from a story that we have preserved in a Jewish book called the Talmud. The temple was destroyed in A.D. 70 by the Romans, and the story goes that a student was sitting on the roadside weeping when he saw the, the temple in flames. And his rabbi said, why, why are you crying? And he said, because we have no more way of getting forgiveness. God told us to bring sacrifices to the temple. He told us to bring animals, to bring goats and sheep and cows and bulls, and that if we sacrifice them, that their blood would cover our sin until the next sacrifice. So now the temple is gone. How are we ever going to be forgiven again? Can you understand why he was weeping? And the rabbi said, no, no, you don't have to weep. God has given us an alternative. Hosea 6.6 says, For I desire kindness and not sacrifice. And so in Judaism and in many other religions, this idea evolved over time that in order to please God, you had to do good things. You had to do good works. And what happens is, if we just have works and we don't have faith, we're out of order. Remember what happens? What's faith without words? Faith without works is what? Let's show that picture one more time to remind us what dead looks like. (laughs) Faith without works is dead. Ephesians says, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. We have to find that balance. And over this Christmas season, we have an opportunity. The world is a little more open, aren't they, during Christmas? That window may be shutting, so we need to take advantage of this opportunity. People are just a little more open, and so we need to engage them socially. James 2.16 says that if one of you says to a person who's in need, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, well, what good is that? And so it's important for us to understand and remember that to be fully alive, that we need to be socially responsible. We need to be able to balance our works and our faith. Sometimes when Jesus was confronting the Pharisees, when he was confronting people, he seemed to be pretty harsh with them because he was trying to hold them to a higher, a higher standard as people who were in leadership. And in Matthew chapter 6, we see this, this story, we see this encounter where people are coming to give money at the temple and Jesus says, hey, when you give, don't be like the hypocrites. Because when they give, they sound the trumpet for everybody to know that they're giving. And I don't know about you, but when I read that verse, I thought maybe the Pharisees carried around the trumpet in their pockets. And they would give a buck and they would blow the trumpet. That's kind of what it sounds like until we understand how offerings were collected in that time period. They had these receptacles, let's call them offering plates in the temple. They were very tall, made of silver, made of metal, and they would spout open at the top. And they kind of looked like a trumpet. And when you would drop coins into it, they called it sounding the trumpet. 
You see, a righteous man, like today if we had that, maybe I'd put in a $5 bill. And guess what you'd hear? Nothing. Because I don't want the glory. I don't want any credit. I just want to give to God. But then somebody goes out to the bank with a loony and asks for 100 pennies. And they drop it as high as they can and make as much noise as they can. That's called sounding the trumpet. Jesus said, when you give, don't sound the trumpet. Give because it's the right thing to do, not because you want glory, not because you want attention. And so we need to make sure that our hearts are in the right place, that we're not doing something just to get noticed because we want people to know how good we are. Let's find that balance between speaking and doing. And the truth is, if we're not doing this, if, if we're missing faith and works, then we're not fully alive in our worship. Just have a few moments, and I want to give you one final thought here as we come to the third point. To be fully alive, it means being missionally active. It means that we need to do something with our faith. It's not just about good works. It's not just about speaking, but there's a whole mission for why we do what we do. James 1.22 says this, <clears throat> uh, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, but do what it says. And what does it say? In Matthew 28, we're told to, to go and make disciples of all nations. And we can't be a movement that just gives or just does nice things because there's a really sharp verse in James 2.19. And James says, oh, you believe there's that there's one God, good. Even the demons believe that. Ouch. It's not enough just to believe in God. It's not enough just to do good things for God, but we need to be in a relationship with God. We need to be open to be used by God at any given point in time. You never know when God is giving you an opportunity. It's happened to me in the grocery lines at the store, it can happen in the oddest places, but we need to be available. You know, in Mark chapter 6, there's a, kind of a funny story. And if you get to know that the people of the Bible, you realize they're, they're just people. And everybody has a story. And, and here, Jesus has uh, preached a great sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. He's been doing miracles. And there's a massive crowd of people who are following him. And now it's starting to get dark, and the disciples say, hey, Jesus, we need to, like, dismiss, end the service early, because we're going to roll into dinner time. And if we go late, we're going to have to feed all these people. So to save money, can we go ahead and cut the sermon short to make sure everybody leaves before dinner? That's the gist of what they're saying. And Jesus looks at them, and he says, you give them something to eat. You Give them something to eat. Jesus, who is God in the flesh, the creator of all things, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, who can do anything, says to his disciples, you do it. Oh, I could do it, but then well, how would you learn? What would that mean if I, you do it? And that's what God says to us today. We need to be available at all times because you never know when God's going to call. Can I share a story with you? And then we're going to close in a time of prayer. 
Um, I think we announced when we first came here that we were selling our house in Cambridge to come back to this area. We lived in Milton for 14 years, sold our house, found this beautiful place out in Cambridge, and three months later, the Lord turned my world upside down, and now I'm on Huntley Street, and I'm at Portico. So anyways, now the prodigal has returned. We've come back to, Port- to, uh, to Milton. Um, we, we listed our home. We sold it. We found a beautiful home in Milton that we fell in love with. And we were looking for a house. And if you've been looking for a home, you know how difficult it can be sometimes. Just to find everything you want. This house almost has everything, but it's missing this. And this one has that, but it doesn't have that. Or that's too expensive. And all these things. And Karen and I must have looked at 15 or 16 houses. We're exhausted. Then one day after church, I said, hey, let's just kind of drive through Milton. Let's take one more look. And uh, nothing and we were using our app to find out where there were open homes, open houses, to see if there was anything we would like. And uh, there was nothing. And I said, Karen, I saw this house about two weeks ago. It might be sold already, but it's just over here. Let's just drive by it. So we drove by it, and there was a sign that said open house. And we said, oh, it didn't show on the app that there was an open house. And so we got there. It was 438. And anybody who's an agent knows from 2 to 4 is open house. You want to go home. It's 4.38, but her car is still in the driveway. I could see the agent still there. I said, Karen, let's go, man. Let's, just, let's go. So we run to the door. We're about to knock, and the door opens. And a man who had kept the agent late a half hour was leaving. And I caught the agent's face, and she looked at me. I said, Can we have five minutes? And she said, hey, I'm trying to sell the house. Sure, come on in. So we walk into the house. We take five steps in. I looked at Karen and said, this is our house. I just knew it. There was a piece. There was a, a witness. This is our house. We look through it, and we tell her, yeah, we love, we love the house. You know, I said, um, my wife and I are just sold our house in Cambridge, and we're coming back to the Mississauga area because we're going to be a pastor at a church. And she was a, an Egyptian woman, and she said, you're a pastor? I said, yes. And you're coming back here because you got a church? I said, Yeah. She said, oh, the man who owns this house, he's a pastor. And he got a church in Kitchener. What's your house look like? (laughs) They didn't buy our house, but I said, wow, this is remarkable. She goes, like, like you're like a for real pastor? I said, yeah, like a for real pastor. And she looks at me and she says, how do you know the voice of God? And I was like, oh, uh... I was just here to buy a house. <laughs> so I put on my pastor's hat. I said, like, you really want to know? She said, yes. How do you know? She said, how do you know it's not you and it's what you want? How do you know it's God? This is like an agent I met five minutes ago. I said, well, you know, Jesus said that like sheep that hang out with their shepherd, you just get to know his voice, and you'll know when it's him and when it's not him. And she said, hey, would you, would you pray for me? And she was a Coptic um, believer, And in their religion, you know, when you ask for prayer, it means like, can you light a candle for me or burn some incense? I said, well, can we pray right now? She's like, right now? I said, yeah. So Karen and I just, we bowed our hearts together and we prayed for her and blessed her and just asked God to lead her and that she would know his voice clearly. I said, in Jesus' name, amen. And her eyes were kind of moist. And she said, I don't know if God brought you here to buy this house. I hope he has. But if he hasn't, I... I think he brought you here just for me. 
So we loved the house. The next day, we decided to put an offer on the house. It was the only one. We thought, it's a done deal. We got it. Our agent called and said, oh, you're not going to believe it. Another offer has come in. And the combined offer with down payment, the deposit and offer is 40000 more than yours. And the agent went back to the pastor and his wife and told them what happened. And he said, we don't care about the money. We want to give the house to the pastor. <laughs> I tell you that because we need to be open and available at all times. We never know who God is going to put in our paths. And when we're fully alive, we become relationally engaged, we become socially responsible, and we become missionally active. Amen? Amen. Let's just pray together before we dismiss. Father, I just want to thank you for this amazing opportunity that we have as believers to be alive in you, to be serving you. And Father, during this Christmas season, where people are just a little more open, a, a little more interested. God, would you help us to be fully alive, to engage people in relationship? Lord, to be a blessing, to be the hands and the feet of Jesus in our community, to be socially engaged. But Lord, equally important, to be missionally engaged, to seek out every opportunity, to be your mouth, Lord, to be an example and representative of you to people in our lives. Lord, would you use us this, this season? Help us, God, to stay focused on you in the midst of all the blitz and glitz of Christmas. Help us to be focused on the mission that you've given each and every believer. And Father, I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. Thanks for watching today. Be sure to check out our other messages on this page. And you can also watch us live online every Sunday morning at 1010 a.m. Don't forget, share your story or send us a prayer request by emailing info at porticocanada.ca. You can also stay connected by liking our Facebook page or following us on Twitter at PorticoCC.